Hi, this is Chris Troy from Praying Mantis, and you're listening to the Classic Rock and Metal, metal Podcast. God bless you. Hey, this is Michael Sweet from Striper, and you are listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. This is the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast, featuring all your favorite bands from the 70s and 80s. The old stuff, the new stuff, the news, interviews, everything you need for your hard rock and metal mix, right here, right now. Officially, the best music podcast in the UK, as voted for by you, the listeners, and an independent panel of judges in the UK Podcaster Awards 2015. This is the one and only Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of your very own Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. This time out, we talk to two British bands who started in the 70s and I guess are therefore considered dyed-in-the-wool classic heavy metal, Girl School and Praying Mantis, plus US Christian rockers Striper, who've divided opinion since they started in 1983, but like the other two, are still out there making records and putting on a show. First up is Chris Troy from Mantis, who took time to mention some of the members who over the years perhaps weren't the best fit for the band. Yeah, there was one keyboard player. I remember he got drunk one night and he was just saying, why the hell am I playing keyboards? I should have been a brain surgeon. So that was the potentially what he really wanted to do. Not play keyboards, but be a brain surgeon so you can see the uh, type of characters we have had in the band. Michael Sweet from Striper says you don't have to buy into the lyrics and message of any song to be able to like it. Uh, and a lot of times they don't listen to the lyrics or they don't care what the lyrics are about. I mean, there's a lot of bands I love and I don't believe in what they're singing about, you know, but I love I love the sound, I love the song. And finally, the girl next door we all wanted growing up, Kim McAuliffe of Girl School, who says they were always accepted by the largely male-dominated heavy metal scene. She thinks... As I said before, that um, all the bands used to be really nice to us, to our faces. God knows what they said behind our back. But there is, of course, only one way we could possibly start this show, as 2016 is shaping up to be the annus horribilis with regard to the permanent exit from the building of artists who, for many of us, have been the soundtrack of our entire lives thus far. None more so, for me, perhaps, than someone who requires no introduction. So I'll make no apologies at all for playing this particular track, but as you'll all have heard it a thousand times before, and possibly another thousand since the end of 2015, this beautifully loose version is a bonus track from the deluxe reissue of Motorhead's No Sleep Till Hand. Smith record. So, as I pour myself a generous Jack and Coke, take it away, Lemmy. Going for the hour, dancing with the devil Going 
Mantis, who started out in the mid-70s, were key components of the new wave of British heavy metal and enjoyed great success throughout the glorious 80s. They marched stoically through the troublesome 90s and noughties and since the millennium have released four full-length studio albums, including the most recent Legacy record which came out towards the end of 2015 through European label Frontiers. The band has had close associations with another British institution, Iron Maiden, with several musicians performing for both outfits, although Mantis never enjoyed the same commercial success as the Irons. The potential reasons for this, along with numerous lineup changes over the years, and of course details of the new album, were some of the many topics I chatted about with bassist and founder member Chris Troy. How does it differ from what's gone before and what familiar elements of Prayer Mantis are going to be there for the existing fans? Yeah, in terms of uh, Betterment, obviously uh, every new album you do, you ha- you have to try to sort of better whatever you've done previously. It's always a tall order, uh, ask any band, you know, uh, it's something that you always strive to do. So, so you'll be searching sometimes for different elements within the band uh, and consequently sometimes people will say, why do we, ha- we have member changes? And that's probably one of the reasons I think some Sometimes if you don't think the formula is quite right in, in certain areas, I think it, then you, you try to adjust it until you get everything just right. Um, and, and then hopefully, you know, the whole thing comes together and capitulates into 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 a great album. Hopefully, um, Legacy will do that. And, you know, from the early signs and uh, reviews we've got and the and the general feedback, it, it just seems to be great. So hopefully it, it is one better than, say, Sanctuary and, you know, and Time Tells No Lies, which are... I think a lot of people now are, are sort of highlighting those albums as, as the as the best ones. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll surpass those. You've often been tagged from the early days as a sort of a straight-ahead rock band. Do you think some people might be a bit surprised at how melodic um, Sanctuary and, and Legacy is? I mean, obviously we've got keyboards as well, so it's, it's a bit different. You know, I think if anybody knows the band in the past, they'll, they'll always link us with the melody. But, um, you know, that's the, that's the thing. You know, sometimes when people hear, 
hear the name but not actually know the music and possibly, you know, because they thought, well, it's part of the new wave of British heavy metal and maybe the early parts of it didn't have that much sort of melody associated with it. So they said, yeah, and probably it's just a, you know, a hard rock band uh, without any melody and maybe they did associate uh, us with that. And, um, you know, when we were supporting Iron Maiden, I think, you know, during the... Uh, uh, you know, the 79, 1980 time, I think people were surprised how melodic we were. Whether we actually fitted in with playing along, you know, Iron Maiden is another thing, but generally I think people really like that, the sort of chalk and cheese element, effectively. You know, it did us good at the time, you know, I think it, it was superb uh, supporting Iron Maiden and, um, so, you know, as you say, you know, I think maybe people were surprised when they did come to see us then and even now, you know, how melodic the band is. So we've got yourself and Tino, your brother, is still in the band. Who else have we got and who's been responsible for the songwriting? Yeah, obviously, Tino and myself, obviously, we go back to, you know, that that was the inception of the band. Tino started it, I think, with a guy called Peter Moore, what, so many years ago. I can't even think that's probably 74, 75. Um, and I joined slightly later when they asked me to to play bass because before that I was, I was actually doing a flamenco guitar. So it was quite a, a divergence for me to, to actually start playing bass so Tino and myself um, throughout the years Andy Burgess on on guitar he's been there now 10 maybe 10 11 years so uh, certainly a, a core member um, who's contributed you know really excellently in the in the writing from uh, this time around and on Sanctuary but I think even more so on, on this um, album and then we've got the two new guys uh, Hands in Tizant and uh, J.C. Kuypers uh, on vocals. Both Good, solid uh, English names there. Yeah, very. Yeah. And I've missed out the, the rest of their middle names. You know, I could spend the rest of the night just going for their middle names. They're, they're, they're quite complex, to say the least, but uh, superb guys and uh, superb musicians. And um, I remember, you know, when we did see them playing... Um, with another band at the time we just thought they were incredible musicians and you know hoped it would work with Mantis and it certainly has I think everyone's sort of contributed to the songwriting process this time round and hence why I, I believe that there's there's probably more divergence in the in the songs, you know, because sometimes you can listen to an album and you think that's ah, a little bit same, you know. The, obviously, it's the same songwriter all the way through, and that's always hard to break out of that mold because there's bound to be that that element of I don't know tedium, you know. You, you go into another song, it sounds a little bit like the, the you know the other one. So here, I think we've got the um, the divergence in material because you know so many people are involved in the in the songwriting. There's um a track called Tokyo on the Legacy album. important as the fan base in japan been for you guys over the years there's there's no doubt in in around 1990 it sort of kick-started the band again that that tour we did with um uh, it was paul diano uh and dennis stratton both uh, from well ex-members of, of iron maiden 
Um, and there was this idea by a guy called Masarito. Um, we, we used to call him Masavigo. Hopefully, he won't hear this, but uh, it was it was a good. No, he's a lovely guy. You know, kingpin over there in terms of music. And um, it was just a brainchild of his to get us over there and do this hybrid thing. It was like praying mantis and Iron Maiden, or I should say, Iron Maiden and, and praying mantis. And we, you know, it was the this hybrid of songs that we put together. And it was sellout shows in Tokyo, about four or five shows, um, and it went down an absolute storm. So it really sort of kick-started it all again. Um, and from that point, you know, we've done so many, I think about another eight, nine albums now. Most of that on the back of, you know, the the support we got from Japan. So it, it sort of gave us the second wind, so to speak, and has kept us going. You're still playing a fair amount of live shows all over the, the world, from what I can see. Who's coming out to see Praying Mantis these days? Is it still the old guard, or is there a new audience there as well? Um, certainly there's the old guard there. You know, you can, you can see them now, the the, the wheelchairs and the, and the Zimmer frames, which uh, <laughs> you know, we're glad to see those people. And uh, to a degree, there is quite um, a lot of new, new uh, fans coming to, to the show. Mainly, I must say, I think in, in Germany and um, uh, you know in Belgium, we, we've we've noticed that quite quite a lot there. So um, it may be that we're communicating possibly more with those audiences than, than than elsewhere. One thing that is very familiar, of course, with the new album Legacy, is that Rodney Matthews is again providing the cover artwork. Now that's really is a revisit, certainly as to the first album, Time Tells No Lies, isn't it? It is indeed. Um, you know, Rodney, uh, we've always loved his art. Uh, his his artwork. He's um, he did the logo as well. You know, the Praying Mantis logo, which you know we we love it. So it's it's been there from well, well since the time tells no lies era. And I think he also did Predator in disguise, which was a superb artwork. And this one, you know, we we all love that one. It was it. He seems to have, you know pulled out all the stops again and. Um, I think in his own words, he said he thinks it's actually one of his best um, pieces as well. So, uh, you know, we're happy with it. Really, really happy with it. Last time you and I spoke, you were still trying to get hold of uh, of your own first album on vinyl, <laughs> I think yeah. through eBay or wherever, as was I. I managed to get mine, but since then, Rock Candy Records has reissued it on CD. So have you given up and ended up with a CD copy instead? Exactly, yes. I still haven't got my vinyl copy. I, I keep meaning to go onto eBay and, and, and find one, but uh, I, I should do it before they get, they get expensive, because I I've heard if you, you know, some of them are getting quite pricey now um, because they obviously they're getting less and less now, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. There must be some pretty memorable shows or tours, whether it was just as the band was starting or coming through to that when the new wave of British heavy metal hit, or even after that. Which of the big shows or the tours really stick in your mind? Not not the one where you fell off the stage backwards and nobody. <laughs> you know about that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but memorable for a good reason. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no doubt the early uh, Reading festivals, uh, I think it was 1980, I think, 80 or 81, um, where the Reading festival then was very much the rock one, you know. I think now the, the, it, it's quite, you know, diversive. And it, it, it's, it's I, I don't know, obviously to me it's it's lost its magic. But then again, maybe I would say that because I'm a lot older and I remember it as it was. But it did seem to have great magic in, in that time and um i remember going out there and the band was yeah it was just beginning to make a mark you know and we we're doing some of the shows with, with iron maiden uh, and i think def leopard were on the bill as well 
But it was just incredible going out to in front of what 35, 30, 35,000 people. Obviously, some significant connections between Mantis and, and Iron Maiden, well documented. Obviously, Dennis was there early, and and Clive Burr was there. Clive sadly no longer with us. But I've often wondered: do you, do you aside from maybe that sh- those shows that you did in Japan, do you have any contact with those or former members, or once they're gone, that's it? Or I mean, it depends as if you bump into them on the circuit. But do you still chat to any of those guys? Definitely, uh, you know, Dennis was in the band a long, long time. I think it was about fourteen or fifteen years. Um, so he he was is is like a brother. You know, we we do see him. He's doing his um, his stuff now with the Maiden Years. You know, the bands, uh, you know, band associated with the Iron Maiden, all the, the covers, etc. And he seems to be enjoying that and doing well out of it. Um, there's certainly no uh, you know bad feelings or anything like that. We 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 still got on, get on very well. Paul Diano, less so. Um, I've not personally seen him for 20 years, I think. It's a long, long time. Um, but again, you know, he's doing well um, in his own little ventures all, all over the world. So he seems, he seems to be, um, you know, he seems to have cracked the, the nut somewhere. And um, but I'd, I'd like to catch up with him, yeah, definitely. You should do what Motorhead did. They did that couple of days when everybody who'd ever been in the band all came up and, uh, and played. That would be quite something. There'll be a lot of members on the stage, that's a certain. Um, I think, you know, if you see the, the family tree, it is, it's quite extravagant. Uh, there's, there's certainly, uh, I think it's, someone showed it to me earlier on um, uh, Wikipedia, uh, and uh, Wikipedia have taken the trouble of actually compiling, it's like a, a bar chart um, of all the people that have actually been in, in, in Mantis and it is quite amazing how you know it's like a timeline with all the various members and uh, it does make intrigue and reading I, even me had a sort of good reminder as to who's been in the band and who left or who disappeared whatever with Clive it was um, uh, that was such a horrible situation but uh, you know lovely lovely character um, you know God bless him be honest, do you ever look at that family tree of Praying Mantis and, and look at a name and go, Tino, do you remember that guy? Who was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, and, and there was one one keyboard player. I remember he got drunk one night and he was just saying, uh, I should have, um, he said, why the hell am I playing keyboards? I should have been a brain surgeon. So that was the potentially what he really wanted to do, not play keyboards, but be a, a sort of a brain surgeon. So you can see the, uh, the sort of type of characters <laughs> we have had in the band, but... Uh, there, there's been, it's been, you know, it's been good times. But you know, we, we've, you know, had the privilege of working with some incredible um, musicians. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, vo- some vocalists, some very, very talented vocalists, and um, you know, in their own right, uh, and, and really diversified. You know, from you know, we've had obviously Gary Barden, um, you know, John Sloman, Tony o- O'Hora, Damien. We we had for a while Damien Wilson. Um, it's it is a it is quite it's almost like a project sometimes when you think about it. It was never actually set off to be like that. It's just the way things have panned out. Yeah, well, you stick around for forty odd years, you can have a few uh, a few exactly. and outs. <laughs> Any real regrets or anything where you look at it and go, "I wish we'd said yes," and we should have said no, or vice versa. Or- um, you know, there's you know when we think back on it that we were under the uh, you know the leadership at one point of, of Rod Smallwood, who was obviously with with Iron Maiden, and then he said, "I'm too busy with Iron Maiden. I just can't give you the attention that you need." So he then effectively palmed us off with a with another management company, and you know we can all look back and say, you know, if it wasn't for that, 
where would we be now? But in, in a way, I do see that being the time when it did seem to go wrong because, unfortunately, these other people, they just didn't quite know the business. Um, there was a company called Leo Krebs that came over and they did state a few things to that management company at the time. And Leo Krebs were, um, were massive in the States and they were prepared to put a lot of money behind the band if we had agreed to a couple of changes in it. You know, like, for instance, the addition of keyboard and bringing in a, a front man, you know, to really sort of deliver the songs. And um, if the story is true, I'm not 100%, but as far as I believe what the case was, they told our management company, our management company said, no, stuff you. You know, they've got to where they are by doing these songs as that unit. Why should we change it? So they went up to Sheffield and they signed a small band called Def Leppard instead. So... You know, that is the story as we later heard it. Whether it's true or not, I, I don't I don't know. But uh, from what I've heard, I believe it, it is true. There's my regret. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Okay. I've got one more for you then, really, and it, it's uh, the one we ask everybody. If you could pick a track that you've done over the years from, from anything, from any album or any particular live recording of a track, which sums up everything you kind of wanted to achieve with praying mantis or where you you know you listen to it back and thought there it is that's that can go on the headstone which one would it be that is a difficult one that yeah. is a difficult one um maybe the one we said earlier I, I still you know for it still touches the the nerves of children you know i think children of the earth it just seems to sort of be because it literally was i think probably the first song we ever really put together i think it was captured city and um and children of the earth that that we you know tony myself we we wrote together and uh, i think peter moore had a little uh say in that one as well but it just seemed to slot into place and without any real effort and you think well that was it now sometimes you have to really work at songs to to get them right and it just seemed to fall into place so because of that i I would say yeah probably children of the earth perfect well we'll be playing that and i think i might go for fight for your honor actually off the new album um okay and um i i quite like even believable all right well i'm I'm not going to argue i might switch then to i'll put put believable on i don't want to get into trouble (laughs) no problem So there we are then, great as always to chat with Chris, and here are those two tracks back to back. Children of the Earth, this version from the re-recorded Metal Morphosis EP released in 2011, and Chris's pick from the latest album Legacy, Believable.
Dan Soter Striper, who started in around 1983 and bucked the trend of heavy metal's tongue-in-cheek satanic kinship by being the first overtly Christian rock band to gain acceptance in the mainstream. They did this by portraying a strong image, delivering a powerful live show, literally a religious experience, and, shock horror, writing some great songs. However, they presented a dilemma for many fans like myself, who found it difficult to get past such a strong religious message packaged up with the music. In time, though, a huge number of people simply enjoyed the tunes and either took or left the lyrical aspect depending on which way they leaned. Interestingly, the band weren't cut any slack by the religious fanatics who made it their mission to persecute heavy metal bands and fans alike, who in their eyes were disciples of Satan. In fact, they were given more grief being labelled as wolves in sheep's clothing, which shows just how out there some of these guardians of our moral standards were. I talked about this and other things with vocalist Michael Sweet, but started by asking him for his thoughts on the band's latest album, Fallen. We always go into it, obviously, first and foremost, trying to please ourselves. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we want to be happy with what we're doing. We want to be able to listen to the album and put it in our car or our house, stereo, whatever, and say, we like that. That sounds good. And be proud of it and be happy uh, about what we've done and accomplished. But that being said, we also try to listen to the fans. Uh, I always post on Twitter and Facebook uh, a question before every album. I said, what do you guys want to hear on this album? And, you know, people, sometimes we get, you know, a thousand comments or more. And we take those comments and we say, okay, look, 400 of them said they want to hear more harmony guitar solos. So then we go in the studio next time around with that in mind. Right. You know, we try to give the fans what they want to hear. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. It's all about the fans. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for them. Uh, and I don't, I don't get the mentality of bands that venture so far away from that, or they actually say we don't care what the fans think. We do this for ourselves. It's like it, it just boggles my mind. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because um, uh, you know, talking about the, the fan base. I mean, it's it's clear from the band's mainstream appeal right back to the MTV days that although the lyrics had a clear message, not everyone who liked Striper necessarily shared your religious view. So could we argue that whether the lifestyle is, I suppose, traditional rock and metal, the sort of sex and rock and roll, and or, or whether it's faith-based or, or secular, is it actually the music that unites people, whatever the belief is? I think so. I think first and foremost, that's what people hear. You know, they hear that riff or they hear that, that sound and, and they're drawn to it. Uh, and a lot of times they don't listen to the lyrics or they don't care what the lyrics are about. I mean, there's a lot of bands I love and I don't believe in what they're singing about. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, um, but I love the sound. I love the song. It's good. It's catchy. It's well performed. Uh, and I think that's the case uh, many times with uh, Striper fans. I, I've talked to Satanists that are fans. I've talked to atheists that are fans. Uh, and, you know, the music breaks down those barriers. Did did you guys um, ever confuse the groups? I remember back in the day when people would like protest outside Black Sabbath concerts, concerts saying that they believed that heavy metal was in itself somehow the work of the devil. Did that ever get confused? Because obviously you were a, a kind of rock and metal band, but with a very different message. Did the, did you ever have any contact with those people? Oh yeah, all the time. Back in the eighties when we first started. Uh, practically every show we would we would have protesters out in uh, front uh, especially when we would go through the south here in the u.s the southern uh, gospel belt you know and uh oh my gosh i mean i mean we came to know god through a gentleman by the name of jimmy swaggart right right and 
you know, his people would come out to our shows when we were in uh, Louisiana and their neck of the woods protesting our shows, standing out there telling people over these bullhorns, don't go in. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And I just used to think, gosh, this is crazy because they don't even know what we're about. We'd always go out and talk to them and ask them, have you seen us? And they'd say no. (laughs) And I mean, here they are protesting something they don't even know anything about. So we'd try to educate them and offer them tickets. Sometimes they'd come in. Most of the time they wouldn't. But I mean, that's just the way... Uh, that's that's the way it goes you know that's a par for the course uh, we've stayed true to our uh, our course and stayed on our path and you know th- nothing like that is ever going to sway us uh, to do what we know we're called to do last question i guess on, on on that specifically then i mean religion can has always been potentially a divisive issue more so in modern times with extremism being so much a part of what we see and hear in the music uh, sorry in the news uh, is striper maybe more relevant now because of that in terms of delivering an uplifting message well you know what i would like to think so i mean i think the world needs more of an uplifting message more often and for more bands music is uh, probably one of the most powerful platforms and tools uh, in our society today because you know everyone loves music uh, that's the one thing that we all uh, have in common is music the love of music and I, I don't think there's one person on this earth that will say I dislike music and and you know I I think there's enough angst and hatred and uh, and bitterness in the world uh, and all these bands that come out and they're rah, 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 you know they're like he's spreading their hate or whatever it's like God enough of that already you know do you get that a lot of people saying like, you know what, I'm not a Christian, I'm not really, I don't have this strong faith, but actually, you know, I was really happy listening to that. Is that, is that common? We do all the time. Right. <laughs> all the time. And, and, you know, they, you know how when you go to like a metal show sometimes, you know, not all the time, but sometimes you'll go there and people will leave uh, having the, the mosh pit was going on all throughout the show. And then sometimes there, some people are leaving bloody and sweaty and uh, you know, at a striper show, it's the opposite. You know, people are leaving with smiles on their face, you know, uh, and they're they're leaving feeling good about life and feeling good about themselves. And that's kind of the whole purpose of what we do. And when we hear that from someone that, hey, you know, I was really down and out. I was I was suicidal. Uh, I had just lost my mom and lost my job and this and that. And, and I just didn't want to carry on or I was, uh, you know, addicted to drugs or I was an alcoholic or this and that. When I left your show. I felt renewed. I felt I felt like I can continue and and like there's hope. And you know that to me is exactly why we do what we do. It, yeah, that's that's the purpose of what we do. I mean, we love music. That's our uh, our common thread with all these people, but at the same time, at the end of the day when the song is over and completed, what do you take with you? You know, just just remembering that you you got the crap beat out of you at at a Slayer show. <laughs> I mean, or or that you know you you were lifted up in a positive way at a striper show, and you caught a Bible, and the guy said a prayer with you and prayed for your situation. Let's get more up to date then, and let's talk about the, the new album, Fallen, which is uh, you know listen to it a lot. The guy sent it through a while ago. It sounds really great. It's definitely a striper album. I think, as you guys have commented, it. I know a lot of bands do this, but genuinely, you can put it you know, in the same bracket as uh, To Hell With The Devil or, or any of that earlier stuff. It's a really heavy sounding record. Were you deliberately going for that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Striper started off in the early days uh, prior to our first 
album being recorded. And uh, if you look at the history of the albums themselves, Yellow and Black, Attack, Soldiers Under Command, and even To Hell with the Devil, you know, we were a heavy band. Yeah, we had ballads. We had First Love. We had Honestly. You know, we had a few ballads thrown in there. But for the most part, we were a heavy, hard rock band. And uh, I feel like to a degree, we kind of lost that over the years. Uh, certainly on, on In God We Trust. Uh, and it, when we reformed in 03 and then 05, we recorded Reborn. We tried to be something we just weren't. We we ditched the guitar solos, the high screaming notes, and that edge metal edge we had. Mm. And I think now with No More Hell to Pay, and especially with Fallen, we've really come back to that. And that was done on purpose. Right. Uh, it took listening to the fans. It took reevaluating uh, who we are, and it also took uh, going back and researching our roots and, and making an album like The Covering. Mm-hmm. And re-recording uh, all these old songs and band from bands that inspired us to become musicians. Well, I was going to ask a question about that because obviously they're covering an entire album of covers, and on the new record you cover the Sabbath song "After Forever," which was great. And I know you said you perhaps considered that they could have been the first Christian rock band, which might surprise a lot of people. Could you maybe elaborate on that? The first thing that pops into anybody's mind when they hear Black Sabbath and they say, "What do you think of Black Sabbath?" Most people think, "Oh, dark, evil, satanic." I like them, but oh yeah, they're a dark band, you know, but they're really not. If you go read the lyrics, most of their lyrics were about politics or war or religion, you know, about God. I mean, like After Forever, that's about as Christian a lyric as one gets. And uh, most people don't know that. I'm not really sure why. Apparently, the lyrics are going in and out, and they're just listening to the music. I don't know. But, you know, Black Sabbath, I think they dabbled in the occult years ago, and it freaked them out. And they started writing a lot of Christian-themed or uh, God-themed lyrics. So I felt like, you know, it was a perfect song for us to cover, musically and lyrically. Plus, we used to listen to Sabbath. I mean, we're big, we're big Sabbath fans. Talking about the songwriting, do you feel... <sighs> Do you feel that you, as 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 a as a band, are responsible for the songwriting, or do you feel that some of that is coming from elsewhere, from your beliefs, or from from God, perhaps? Well, I, I definitely feel and believe that a lot of it is inspired by God. Uh, I always, you know, I write most of the songs, um, probably ninety. 95%, maybe even 90, 98% of the songs over the years. And, and the reason for that is because I write the particular style that Striper has established. You know, everyone else's style is a little different. Um, but that being said, when I write, absolutely, I draw from inspiration uh, straight from from the heavens, from, from God above. You know, a lot of these songs on Fallen were taken right out of the Bible. The song Yahweh is about the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, the song Fallen is about Lucifer being kicked out of heaven. Let there be light, right from Genesis. So, yes, absolutely. I also write from experiences that I've gone through over the years. You know, from uh, losing someone to falling in love with someone to uh, the song Pride is about relationships and how pride can kind of destroy relationships, sadly enough. But if we were to just put aside our pride and humble ourselves, uh, how much better off would we be as people? Right. A lot of people draw on their faith at really trying times in their life. Is there, a, is there a particular time or a particular event where you can 
I'm sure there are lots of them, but something specific where you think if it wasn't for my faith and perhaps for the music going hand in hand, that would have been, you know, more than a struggle. Well, gosh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've lived a lot of tough times over the years. I mean, my marriage almost fell apart years ago during the Against the Law period. Uh, Oz's marriage did. Tim's marriage did. And Robert's relationship, he was engaged to be married, it fell apart. So all the, all the relationships fell, fell apart. Mine almost did. Uh, and the reason for that is because we turned into these guys that started you know, drinking and going against everything that we uh, you know, had stood for and became to a degree hypocritical in what we were doing. And that's why I left the band in 1992. That was a very dark time for me. Right. Uh, and I've got, I got through that. Uh, I lost my wife to cancer. You know, of, of almost 23 years. I'm remarried now to a beautiful woman, Lisa. She's a godsend. But, you know, I've gone through a lot of times where I did question God. And, and quite frankly, there have been times in my life where I, I felt like God wasn't there at all. And it was just a big joke. Right. But I always come to the realization eventually that God doesn't do all these things to us like we want to believe how can God let this happen? How can God let that happen? Mm. If he loves me, why would he allow this? Why would he take this person? Well, it's not a matter of God doing it. It's a matter of, number one, that's life. Mm -hmm. Number two, we bring a lot of it on ourselves. You know, we make choices in life and they affect our lives and they direct our lives. Right. You know, so I just feel like the blame game, and I did that myself, needs to be put aside. And when I when I reevaluated that and thought hard about that, I realized like how much God does love me, and and what He's done for me in my life, and and it's it's helped me to stay on the straight and the narrow. You know, interesting. Well, it's good to hear, and I think a lot of people will be somewhat encouraged from what you were saying about you know there are times when you felt he, God wasn't there and you you know you've gone against it and um, because you know I think it's I don't know some people who are struggling they um, they can look at people who are overtly religious and think well you think you've got it all sorted but if those people have gone through tough times I don't know somehow I think it makes it easier for them to either move towards some kind of solution be it religious or otherwise so I think overall that that's a very strong message. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm here to humble myself. And, you know, I've, I've been there and done it. And uh, I've had some real tough times in my life. And, and like I said, questioned God and turned turned away from God. Hmm. We're going to play something from the album, but our rule is it's your record, so you get the choice. Uh, if, do you have a specific that you'd like us to play? What's your crowning moment from the album that you'd like people to hear more than anything? Well, that's the real tough part about this album is there's no filler. I'd probably pick the opening track, hmm. Yahweh. Because it's a co-write with Clint Lowry. It's such a powerful song, so different for Striper, and it's our most epic, longest song we've ever recorded. Good, because that would have been my pick as well. <laughs> awesome. Yahweh, Yahweh,
Now, as you may have gathered, that was uh, a very interesting interview for me. I have to say, at the time of uh, listening to the album, ready for reviewing it and doing the interview through that process and speaking with Michael Sweet, who's a fantastic, really nice guy, um, I was going through a very difficult time personally. And uh, I have to say, I'm not a religious person at all, uh, but I found the whole thing very uplifting. He was great to talk to. It's a really good album to listen to. And it, it kind of somehow helped. Don't worry, I'm not going to be coming around to anybody's house banging on the door with the Bible, but I just there's a place for it for everybody uh, and it was quite a different one for me so thank you to Michael it was great and go and have a listen to the album go and buy the album it's uh, extremely good last but by no possible means least this month we have Girl School who like Prey and Mantis have been around since the late 70s they enjoyed a long time musical partnership and friendship with Motorhead which spawned a number 5 EP and hit single Please Don't Touch but by themselves were still more than a force to be reckoned with their classic hit and run album in 1981 reached number 5 in the UK album chart and sold gold in more than a couple of countries around the world. The band have continued off and on over the years coping with the loss of guitarist Kelly Johnson and going through various personnel changes but now have three of the four original members plus Jackie Chambers who's been with them since 1999. The band toured the US recently and their latest album Guilty as Sin is as much a girl school album as you could want it to be. I chatted with vocalist and guitarist Kim McAuliffe about this and other things but started by asking whether they really were just one of the boys even though they were well girls. I sort of get asked this question quite a lot about what was it like to be an all-girl band? Did you feel you were treated any differently? And all I can say is that we didn't really feel that we were. Mm. Um, we, were we were always accepted as part of, you know, or sort of one of the boys, really, I think. And I suppose it's because we we didn't really go on, on like looking too girly, perhaps, or whatever. And I suppose it was the music we were playing. Well, we always felt like we were one of the boys. And as, a, and as I said before, that um, all the bands used to be really nice to us to our faces god knows what they said behind our backs but as far <laughs> as we you know we could tell um you know we were we were sort of treated as as the same and and same with the fans as well i think probably a lot to do with it as well is perhaps because um of the motorhead connection right. obviously because lemmy embraced us so i suppose you know that it made it all right if you know what i mean well, also, with the, on the press side of things, it probably did work to your advantage because there was a novelty element to it which forced them to look at you and then, obviously, the music stacked up as well. So you were you had a lot of sort of front covers and a lot of articles, weren't there, at the time? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, what happened was, basically, we didn't... We honest, honest, honest golf, we didn't set out to be an old girl band. I mean, <laughs> what happened was that uh, Edith and I, we grew up in the same street um, and she had a brother who played guitar and I had a cousin who lived next door to me that played guitar. Um, and so they sort of, we sort of got influenced by them. And of course, we all, we both love music and my cousin got me into heavy rock. So I was, I grew up with all the glam rock stuff, you know, but then he used to bring back all the, the new Zeppelin and new purple albums and set Sabbath and sort of got me into it all, you know. So, uh, basically that we decided then, Ian and I, that we wanted to be in a band. But of course, all the boys that we knew, they went, get lost, basically. They didn't want girls in their band, you know. And, of course, we were only just starting out then. So, um, you know, they just didn't want to know. It was as simple as that. So the only way we could actually be in a band was to find other girls that wanted to learn how to play and be in a band. Right. We found that was the easiest way to learn as well. If you were all playing together, it gave, gave you more incentive, do you know what I mean? And so, basically, we, we had no choice but to be a female band. We didn't really even think about it as something... Uh, different we just thought well there's nothing else we could do we wanted to be in a band no boys wanted us 
So we had to find other girls. And there was a girl at uh, Edith's school that played drums in the girls' brigade, I think, or something, Tina. So she, so we started off a little three-piece playing away, and then, then it just progressed from there. Then, of course, we did start to get this attention. So we thought, we're not stupid. We thought, oh, hang on a minute. This, this could be quite good. <laughs> you know, there'd be no point in getting a bloke in the band now. What is the point? <laughs> you know, and all, I mean, all, you know, so it just, obviously, it did help us. Um, and we weren't that stupid. So, and of course, by that time, we were touring literally in my mum and dad's old Bedford van. Well, that we stole off them, basically. I mean, we were literally sleeping on top of our gear, in, you know, sleeping bags on top of the bloody gear. And uh, so, I mean, it, our poor Tim, our roadie, he used to have to sleep in the front seat, you know. Um, and, uh, well, he wasn't our roadie, I was our boyfriend at the time, my boyfriend, but poor Tim, he got roped into it. So, of course, he was sleeping across the front seat, and we'd all be top-tailing on top of the bloody gear at the back. Imagine if we'd had all well, small, smelly men with us. It wouldn't have worked so well. <laughs> so, um, literally, that's, that's how it all began and um, has been ever since. I mean, the band progressed pretty quickly, and my impression was in the early 80s, and you guys, you just, I say you toured a lot, is an understatement, you never seemed to be off the road. Did you get a chance to enjoy that success, you know, with the singles in the charts and the album, or was it just too gruelling, was it just full on all the time? A friend of ours started up his own record label, City Records, and he just put a single out uh, with the UK subs, who were great mates of ours. He literally, he said to us one day, what do you fancy doing a single of course, we jumped at the chance, you know. I mean, hell, having an actual record out, you know, amazing. So there we were one afternoon. It was dingy. You know, it wasn't exactly how we imagined it to be. It was glamorous, you know, this record. It was literally in some dingy basement in Soho one afternoon, and we knocked out Take It All Away. Right. And funny enough, we came up blinking into the sunlight, you know, out of the depths of this, you know, dungeon of a, of a studio. And there was John Peel at the top of the bloody steps. <laughs> And um, we got introduced to him, and he actually played the single. And then, of course, Motorhead at the time were looking for a support band for their first major British tour, the Overkill tour. Right. And they heard about this single, Take It All Away, and about this girl band. And, of course, Lemmy being Lemmy, you know, you thought, oh, that'd be a good idea. <laughs> and uh, something different. And, um, and then, of course, we met up, and he invited us. And that's, then he invited us on to the Overkill tour. And then, of course... That was in like 1979 or whenever it was. So yeah, and that that is when it all really did take off. Then yeah. So yeah, I mean then afterwards, of course, yeah, it was pretty non-stop. I remember literally being coming home one day and literally bursting into tears, just walking into my flat, and my mum and dad had put up a welcome home banner with oh. blues and everything, and I just sat there and I just and I just all by myself just dumped the suitcase down. I was so relieved, you know, to actually be home for at least a. A week or so, yeah. So, I mean, when it really started to take hold and the singles were going, obviously the, the the first album came out. I mean, what was the? I mean, everybody talks about making it, and that's where you've paid your dues and you've done, like you say, all the crappy dives and stuff. What was the, Was there a point where you just thought, "This is great. This is what we've always wanted," and you kind of thought, "Yeah, we, it's hard work, but we've made it." I mean, what was the best point of that particular period? When we had our first single out, and it sort of charted in the lower charts, and then and then we had the next one out, that one a bit higher. And then we had Demolition out, and that went in at number 28 in the charts, can you imagine? And then, yeah, and then, um, and then of course, then, of course, Hit and Run, you know, straighten at number five, and then, of course, you know, um, Please Don't Touch with Motorhead. I mean, that was just, you know, and Top of the Pops, of course, that was, I think that was every band's, that was the pinnacle, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Of, of every band's career, to be on Top of the Pops. And when we knew we were going to be on Top of the Pops, I mean, it was just incredible. Um, even for Motorhead, I mean, because they'd never done it, you know, before, and Lemmy uh, still says it's been their highest ever selling single as well, you know, so. 
I mean, we did a quarter of a million, and that was only to get to number five. Wow. I mean, imagine these days. I think you only have to sell about 10,000, you're number one, you know. Now, rock, rock and metal bands uh, always have great stories about the road and, and, and never seem to escape the glare of, of the sort of uh, uh, the comedy aspect. There is that always element. We always had it when we were following bands, and, you know, you you, you, you got to have a laugh and you don't take yourself too seriously. And, yeah. and in film... It's an often used comedy scene about bands when someone gets electrocuted for some reason or other, but <laughs> but that actually happened to you, didn't it? Yes, and it wasn't very funny, I can tell you. <laughs> I suppose it was in probably about early eight, well, about, probably about 1981. I should remember it, shouldn't I, really? But <laughs> it, I'm trying to forget it, actually, but no, it was, uh, it was about in 1981, and we were in Denmark, in Copenhagen, and um, I still remember it. It was actually packed, you know, the uh, thing, and... Uh, and they'd been having trouble with the electrics that day. And of course, we go on, we do the first song. All of a sudden, this horrendous noise comes through this PA, whatever. And of course, I, I, you know, I had my hand on the mic and I'm like, boof, that was it. Just thrown back. And of course, the guitar was stuck to me and the, and the mic. So I'm on the floor with all this electricity just literally waving through me, you know. And, um, and the weird thing is, I can actually remember everything, even though I was flat on my back, obviously just looking straight up the ceiling. I, I remember seeing everything going on. I remember seeing Enid screaming at the monitor man. I remember, like, j- j- Kelly just off wandering around, not realising, oh, on her own world, going off there. And then I remember the lighting guy literally coming from the back. It looked like he was coming over the heads of everybody to, to, you know, to the stage. And then I remember seeing Steve, our roadie, that time kicking the mic off me. I remember seeing everything, and then people going, "There's no way you could have seen it because you were literally stuck on, you know." So that was weird. Perhaps I, you know, have this weird out of body experience or something. But I mean, it was awful. But the worst part of it was, so of course, next thing I know, I'm in the bloody ambulance. I'm off in hospital, and they wired me up, and they and uh, doctors, and nurses kept coming in all night and to talk to me to try out their English. You know, of course, the, the others all left me there. So I said to them, "Right." The last thing I said was. Because I, I, was, I was fine. I felt absolutely fine, you know, whatever. And they couldn't, they were looking me over, no burns, they couldn't believe it, nothing. They were like, oh, you know, whatever. And they said, the, the best thing about this is that you'll never suffer from any arthritis or rheumatism for the rest of your life, they said, because you had so much electricity going there, yeah? Anyway, they're like, so that was on the upside. Then I said to the rest of them, I said, right, don't leave me in here too long tomorrow. I said, you know, come here early. I'm not going to be stuck in here, you know, whatever. Anyway, I'm still in there, and I bloody midday. The swines, they'd all been partying all night, and, and they were too hungover in the morning. They're still bloody in bed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm laying there waiting for them to come and, you know, get me. And I had a right go at them when they finally turned up. Obviously, um, when you started out, you were all really young, and, and, and yeah. um, you, you know, you're, you're singing and writing about that. I mean, have your life experiences over the years guided what you write about now and sort of any examples from the new album? Uh, well, I was thinking we've always written um, sort of, not political songs, but, I mean, we've always written songs about things that we feel strongly about. I mean, most of them have been about getting drunk and falling over, sure, I mean, you know, sure. basically. But I mean, we've always found space to, you know, like even in the old days, I mean, one of the first songs we ever wrote was called Baby Doll, and that was all about putting young girls in pageants and things like that, you know, the years. And Not For Sale was all about using women to sell cars, you know, and, uh, and even on our last uh, studio album, uh, Legacy, there's a song called I Spy, which we wrote about being spied on, basically, you know, CCTV and all the rest of it. So, um, We've always liked to write about things that we feel strongly about. And so, of course, on the new album, we've got uh, Revolution, which Enid wrote, and like, Treasure, which she wrote again. I mean, I, this time, she left me to do all the, all the writing about getting drunk and falling over type ones. Right. So and she, did, she did the more serious ones. <laughs>
let's move on then to, to Guilty of Sin, which I've I've had for um, a couple of days. It's right. great. Sounds like a girl school album to me. It's uh, it's oh, brilliant. Yeah, really really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. But are you finding? I mean, you've been playing a bit, and we'll talk a bit more about the the, the state are you, the states tour. I mean, are you finding? Is there a new audience? Are you seeing those younger faces, or is it just the old old guys like me stood at the back with a pint? <laughs> oh no no, it's definitely younger faces. Yeah, Good. definitely. Oh, you don't sound that old because the funny thing is that most people I'm speaking to these days, when I'm saying about oh when we toured with Motorhead in 1979, <laughs> they sort of look at me as if to go oh, when. Um, but no, it's great to see. Oh, we've still got all the old faces, and um, and then of course a lot of young people, and of course a lot of times they bring their sons or whatever, yep. you know. So yeah, um, we get them all, all through. So it's nice to see all the old. Or the oldies like us, but it's great to see young people as well. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of tracks off the new album. I have to mention something which leaps off the grooves to anybody uh, is the cover of "Staying Alive." Um, ah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Bee Gees <laughs> track. So I'm going to have to ask you the story behind that one. Before we carry on, though, do you like it or not? <laughs> I do like it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, oh. I mean, I absolutely, I think that the, the, you know, when you're taking on a song like that, it's such an iconic track, and the original yeah. recorded track is, you know, you can you can hear half a bar of that, and everybody knows exactly yeah, what's yeah. coming. So it's it's a brave move, but yeah. it's been done girl school style, and that to me is what a cover should should be. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Yeah, because um, well, what's happened is over the years, of course, we've always um, recorded. Uh, well, we tried to do a cover of a song that we all grew up with or loved, you know. So anyway, this time round, I couldn't actually think of any. Then suddenly Tommy, our manager, he went, he said, "This, you might think I'm a bit nuts. He goes, but what about staying alive? And I, we all just went, what? <laughs> Are you nuts? <laughs> um, and uh, and anyway, funny enough, um, Enid and Denise then said, no, actually, we could really hear it. They could hear the, you know, the, the bass and the drums yep. on it. Uh, me and Jackie were sort of still going a bit, we were a bit sceptical. And so we went into rehearsal just to knock it about to see what, what it was going to sound like. And we thought, oh, actually, this could work. Um, and then, of course, so we went in the studio and did it. And, of course, Chris came out. It was a great, I mean, for example, there's no way we were going to be singing that ah, ah, ah bits or whatever, you know. So, of course, Chris goes, no, we'll just do it on the guitar. Oh, yeah, of course. Why didn't you think of, you know, it's a genius. Of course, you just do it on the guitar, don't you? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, I, I love it. I mean, I really love it. Uh, <laughs> we're really, very pleased how it turned out anyway, yeah. Um, this is a difficult question, but I, I always ask it. But, I mean, um, well, it may not, may not be a difficult question, but what would you say is your proudest moment on record over the years if you had to if you had to grab put a song into a time capsule which said everything about girl school um you know in in what would it be possibly emergency mm -hmm, yeah because how we set out to sort of be
then of course there's Race of the Devil as well, which actually, you know, obviously pushed us right up there. Yeah. Because Jeff Beck basically was on on Round Table, I think it was, and they were they were playing. You know, do you remember? Do you remember the days when they used to re- review all the singles? Yeah. And um, anyway, he was on, and they put um, Race of the Devil on, and Jeff Beck was down the saying, "There's no way that's girls playing." So of course we all jumped on that, and all the press jumped on it, and then of course we invited him down to a gig, and he came, and God, that gave us he gave us loads of you know publicity out of that, and so that. But I mean, I suppose. Um, I suppose that was the emergency for us because that was the beginning of it all. Yeah, um, you yeah. Ta- you toured the US recently. We talked about your visa hassles, which I know all about from another band we deal with. But all oh, that, yeah, yeah. All, all that aside, what what was the tour like? I mean, how long was it since you'd played over there? Uh, well, yeah, that again, it was eight years or something, which I couldn't believe. I mean, it's frightening how time flies. Yeah, it was amazing. We were there for a month. We started off on the west coast and made our way across right to the east coast to Brooklyn for the last gig. We had some great audiences and uh, real lots of support there. So yeah, it's it was amazing. Brilliant. Well, uh, that's pretty much it for me. I've got. I mean, one thing. Well, obviously, we're going to play a track from the new record, and and um, I'm always the gentleman about these things. It's your album, so it's it's your choice. Which uh, which track should we be playing from Guilty as Sin? Oh blimey! Well, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I like. Revolution. I like take it like a band. I like awkward position, which uh, is a bit embarrassing. But there you go. I like. Uh, I like. Uh, you know. Yeah. Guilt, guilt. I said. Oh, I don't know. Which. Well, it's hard. I will choose one on your behalf. Cheers, Ollie. Thanks very much. Thanks to the lovely Kim for taking the time. It's always nice to catch up. Here is my pick from the new girl school album, Guilty as Sin. It's side one, track one. The rather marvelous come the revolution.
that's all from me, Ollie Barnes. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll play out with another track from one of our recently dearly departed. Probably my favourite album of his, for which I celebrated his passing by purchasing an original vinyl copy, from which I have this, the kind of title track. So it's so long from me, and farewell to David Bowie. played guitar jamming good with Wed and Gilly and the spiders from Mars he played it left hand but made it too far became the special man then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo like some cat from Japan He could lick them by smiling He could leave them to hang Became on so loaded man Well hung a snow white tan Ah!